Well, if we've not met before, uh, my name is Garrett, and I've been here for about six years. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, over that time, Pastor Kevin's given me all kinds of opportunities that have helped, helped me to, to learn and to grow. And I remember one of the earliest bits of advice he gave me was back in high school. And uh, he said, more or less, spiritual growth, maturity, find, finding God's will for your life has a lot to do with simply just taking the opportunities that God puts in front of us. So I'm excited for the opportunity to teach. Thank you, Kevin, for the opportunity and for your example of taking opportunities. So let's get right into it. Turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1. I'll read the first nine verses, and then we'll pray. So if you would, please stand. So we stand in honor of the word as we read. All right, Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of eunuchs. Would you pray with me? Dear Lord, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for this story of Daniel, a man of God that uh, is an example to us, Lord, of how we can resolve in our hearts to be obedient to you and to live a life that's faithful to you. So would you bless your word, Lord, would it take root in our hearts this morning? In your name, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, so we are three days away from living in the year 2020. Is everybody ready? You have your New Year's resolutions all planned out? How many of you, I'm curious, by show of hands, how many of you are planning some New Year's resolutions? Okay, yeah, looks about right. <laughs> I saw some studies that have been done, they polled people and whatnot, and they found out that you know, over half of us are really not that into it, but half of us are. And of those that, that do make resolutions, only 10% will stick with them for more than one week. And isn't that the truth? So oftentimes we make way too many or they're just, they're just unrealistic. So I saw somebody, they, they made out their resolutions and I thought they were fantastic. It was number one, gain more weight, number two, save less money, and number three, make more realistic resolutions. So they're, they're right on track. Personally, I am a huge believer in goals. I like to set goals, and that's something we do with the staff here, and it can be a really helpful and healthy practice. So in my mind, a New Year's resolution is simply a goal that starts January 1st. 
But I think it is a little bit of a joke in our culture, New Year's resolutions, because we realize nobody sticks with them for more than a week. But also, nothing really changes on January 1st. There's nothing magical about that date. You and I are still going to be the same donut-loving, exercise-hating people that we are today. Amen? So what really matters is not the start date, but whether or not we're resolved in our hearts to make a change, right? When it gets tough, when it gets hard, are we going to last one week or when the going gets tough, are we going to be resolved in our hearts to stick with it? Because that's what a resolution is supposed to be by definition. A resolution is the act of determining. So it's to determine, to purpose, to, to um, there's a few other words I had. There's a finality to it, okay? So it's like you make up your mind in advance. And uh, it's not something that we hope to do or that we're going to attempt to do or, or try to do. Perhaps you're reminded of the ancient wisdom literature of Star Wars when Jedi Master Yoda says, try not, do or do not, there is no try. That's old school Star Wars. Does anybody remember that? I actually messed it up the first service, and some middle schoolers came running to the stage to correct me. (laughs) So that was helpful. My message today is not about making good New Year's resolutions. My, My message today is hopefully to encourage all of us to make the lifelong resolutions that truly matter, the ones that have an implication for, for all of eternity. So the text that we're in today is an awesome example to us of that, of someone who has resolved in his heart when it truly mattered. This opening story of Daniel has become one of my favorites recently. It's not the, the blockbuster Daniel stories that most of us all know and love, you know, Daniel in the lion's den or the fiery furnace. Great stories. This one's a little different. This is Daniel's origin story. And I love it because I find that it's super inspiring and informative and helpful in how am I supposed to live my life in American culture in 2020. So let's look at it one verse at a time here. Verse 1, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So a ton happens right off the bat before we're ever introduced to our main characters. It's 605 B.C., And the Israelites are in Jerusalem, the promised land, they're God's people, and they have a king, they've got a temple, but then all of a sudden sudden, something devastating happens. This Babylonian army rolls in, attacks the city, and they take some of the treasures, but more importantly, they take some of the young Israelites into captivity as exiles in Babylon. I think verse 2, it's interesting that it says the Lord gave Jehoiakim into his hand. It wasn't Nebuchadnezzar's... uh, It wasn't just all him, right? His success wasn't by chance. God had his hand on it, working behind the scenes, even in this tragedy, to carry out his perfect will for his people. So it's three little words the Lord gave, but in them wrapped up this deep, big theological truth that I think we should all be reminded of, and that that is that God is sovereign. Amen? He is perfectly and completely in control. And I'm guessing the Israelites didn't see it at the time, just as we often don't, but... He was working even in this evil nation of Babylon in in the exile. So the exile also didn't come as a complete surprise to the Israelites. They uh, had been warned by prophets, especially in Isaiah, that if they continued in their unrepentant disobedience towards the covenant, that that they would experience judgment. And and God is just. They knew that. So Isaiah 39, 5 through 7, we see Isaiah saying to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. 
Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And they shall take away some of your sons who, who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And that's exactly what happens, as we'll see in a moment. They continued to be unrepentant, unfaithful towards God's covenant, and they were removed from, our, from their home. So this pattern of disobedience and then being removed from one's home should sound familiar to us. If you think all the way back to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had a perfect home God had created for them, and then he laid out for them what obedience looked like. He told them what not to do. And what did they do? The exact opposite. And therefore, we see in Genesis 3 that they were exiled from the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were the first exiles. So this is a pattern. starts as early as Genesis, but continues throughout the Bible of God's people being removed from their home because of disobedience and brokenness and sin. And I think it's a pattern that still plays out today, amen? If you're a Christian, you know that this is, this is not your true home. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we're, we're right now forced for the time being to live as exiles in a world that's not our own. So even though the physical city of Babylon doesn't exist anymore, in a sense it still does. And in a sense, we're living in it, right? There's a, there's a great video by the Bible Project called The Way of the Exile. I'll post it to our Facebook uh, group in case you want to watch it. But in it, Tim Mackey says, In the Bible, Babylon has become a symbol that describes any human institution that demands allegiance to its idolatrous redefinition of good and evil. And doesn't that sound like our culture? Does our culture demand allegiance to its idolatrous redefinition of good and evil? I think so. So I think it's fair to say that we are, in a sense, living, working, raising families in a figurative Babylon. And if we understand ourselves to be exiles in Babylon, then there's so much in the scripture that I think we can learn from and glean from. And there's questions that we can approach it with, such as, what happens to exiles in Babylon? What are exiles in Babylon supposed to do? What are they not supposed to do? So we'll look at that. In Daniel 1, 3, and 5, we see what, exile, what happens to exiles in Babylon. It says, The king instructed Asenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so at the end of the time they might serve before the king. So let's get a quick picture of what's happening here. We have Daniel, who's estimated to be between 15 and 18 years old. So he's a young guy. Anybody remember what it's like to be a 15 to 18-year-old? Remember the acne? Remember the hormones? I remember every parent in the world asking, what are you going to do with your life after high school? It's a fun age. It's a tough age, not to mention uh, Daniel being ripped from his home by, by an enemy nation. A lot of us don't even know who we are at that age, but Daniel is not a lot of us. Daniel was exceptional. He was exceptionally smart, exceptionally good-looking, as it says, and uh, he had his entire life in front of him as a young Hebrew guy. And here he is being taken into exile into one of the biggest cities in the world. Babylon was, uh, was known for 
Um, it's Hanging Gardens, one of the seven wonders of the world. And a lot of people considered it the center of the world. In fact, the maps they drew at the time would have Babylon right in the center as if everything re revolved around it. So we have this young Jewish teenager being taken into this great big city, removed from the coverts of home, but for the Lord's purposes. And I think he knew that. But King Nebuchadnezzar, he had purposes of his own. He wanted smart, good-looking young guys to come into the palace, and he wanted to put them through three years of training. This was like a, a Babylonian graduate program. And apparently, he didn't want to just teach them how to do a job. And it, that, wasn't, that wasn't enough in his mind. It wasn't as if it was like three years of, you know, make sure you dust that idol on Tuesday and that one on Wednesday and feed the lions two to three times a week. And I think it was, it was a lot more than that. He was trying to strip them of their Jewish identity. He wanted them to become good Babylonians so that he could, uh, well, so that they could serve effectively, so that they wouldn't revolt, and that eventually he could even send them out as, as his ambassadors. So he did this by way of a three-part plan. Nebuchadnezzar had a three-part assimilation plan, three tactics that he used to try to deconstruct these guys' identity, make them forget who they are and where they came from. And I think these are three tactics that the enemy continues to use in our culture today on us. So see if they sound familiar as we go through. The first tactic he used was to try to change the way that they think. And he did this through that re-education, three years in the language and literature of the Chaldeans. These guys were brought up on the Torah. They knew God's word. They knew his commandments. And now being presented to them as truth was the ways of the world, the thinking of the world. And the hope was to get them to forget all that they had learned and accept this new education as truth. And it seems like this happens in our culture. Amen? There's, there's forces at work in our culture that would get us to forget what we've learned and to get us uh, to to relearn the ways of the world. And some of these things we can avoid, and, and some of them we can't. Um, my parents, one of the tactics that they decided to use at a young age was to put us in homeschool, or to not put us in public school, but rather to homeschool us. So I was homeschooled until I was uh, in ninth grade, through ninth grade. Let, some of you are thinking, ah, oh, that explains the social awkwardness. And uh, <laughs> to which I would awkwardly agree. Uh, but I'm, as, as an adult now, looking back, I'm, I'm super grateful for that, that there wasn't, you know, the ways of the world and the ways of God presented to me as truth. I, I am grateful for it. But I'll tell you, I wasn't at the time. And in fact, towards the end of ninth grade, I was, I was done. I was over it. I was, uh, I was like, Mom, you've got to put me in public school. Send me to Babylon. I need, I need more friends, Mom, <laughs> even if they are pagans. So... <laughs> And they did. They actually they, they put us in uh, public school, and I began to experience what, uh, what they were you know, protecting me from and what Daniel was experiencing in a very intense way. You know, faith challenged, truth attacked, and new and different, often enticing ways of thinking presented. Now, I realize homeschool is not for everybody. There's a lot of reasons that it's not a good option, um, but I am grateful for that. Now I lost my spot. Well, it's no secret that the world wants to change the way we think, right? And uh, it's not just in our education system. It's in the things that we're reading, the things that we're watching on TV, the things that we're engaged with online, and the list goes on and on. I think one of the lies that the enemy uh, tries to use on us, and I know I've, I've fallen into this trap before, is, 
is to get us to think that all learning is good learning, that we need to experience everything and be aware of everything so that we maybe know what we're up against or, or um, that we're in the know. This happened to me not too long ago. I was watching these um, documentaries, these criminal cases on murders and, and serial killers. And, and after a while, I could just sense you know, my mood uh, being bad, I, some depression, a lot of fear. And I think, uh, by the grace of God, thankfully, I was able to realize what was happening in the connection and decide that you know, I didn't need to be watching that and it wasn't good for me. But by then, I think the devil had already capitalized on, on an opportunity. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that crime documentaries are a sin by any stretch. What I am saying is that the devil is subtle, he's crafty, and he's cunning, and he uses things. So, and this experience, this documentary experience, for me, helped me to, to realize that. But the Bible warns us of it. In Genesis, uh, it talks about the cunningness of the serpent. And Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, he says uh, in 2 Corinthians 11.3, but I fear, lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. So I don't know about you, but I could use the warning. I could use the reminder. I'm not always keenly aware of what I'm allowing into my life. And uh, I think a lot of times I'm even less aware of why I'm allowing certain things into my life. And I think the why is just as important, maybe more important, than the what a lot of times, because we know that it's not what goes in, into a man that defiles him, but, it, but, um, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. That's from Matthew 15, 11. And we also know that we reap what we sow, amen? So the, the evidence of, of whether or not what we're putting in is good or bad, we gotta look at what's going out. Are these things that we're subjecting us ourselves to, the things that we're meditating on, are they leading us into loving God and loving people more? Or are they doing the opposite? What's the fruit of the seeds that we're sowing? Galatians 6, 7, and 8 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows in the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows in the spirit will of the spirit reap everlasting life. So brothers and sisters, may we be a people who are aware and cautious of the things that we're allowing the people and the places that we're allowing to, to educate us. And when it's unavoidable, may we be rooted in Christ, standing firm, taking up the shield of faith with which we can quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Amen. I was really encouraged by Colossians 2, 6 through 10. It's up on the screen. It says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world, not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. Isn't that a great scripture? Stand firm, be rooted in Christ when the world tries to lie to you and change the way that you think. Because only in Christ will we find what you're looking for. Only in Christ will we be complete. So Daniel was rooted in God. That was his protection against this enemy tactic of re-education. That could be our protection as well. So tactic number one, the enemy wants to change the way that you think. And the way that we combat this tactic is by being aware of who and what we're allowing to educate us 
but more importantly, to be rooted in our faith, to be rooted in Christ and built up in Christ. The second tactic Nebuchadnezzar tried to use was to change the way that they live. And he did this through the means of changing their cultural customs. Look at verse 5. For three years they were to get a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank. Now I'm assuming this would have been unlike anything that they had tasted in Jerusalem. I'm not sure about that. I just imagine that the king's delicacies were a bit different than what they were used to. It made me think of growing up when we, when we got to have steak. It would be that Safeway Select. And Dad would cook it to a flavorless well done. And, uh, <laughs> and then I went and got my first job at a fancy steakhouse. And they used the choicest cuts of the finest steak and cooked it to a perfect medium rare. And it's like my eyes were open to the delicacies of the world. <laughs> I'm just kidding. This actually would have been a much bigger deal than that, I think. Uh, the temptation for Daniel and for his friends and for all the exiles, I think, probably would have been enormous. And as we'll see in a moment, Daniel did say no to the king's delicacies. He did not indulge in the king's delicacies. But a lot of exiles did. In fact, it would appear most of them did. And this isn't surprising, right? It's no surprise that it is a hard thing to say no to what the world has to offer. There's enormous pressures, and we don't want to stand out sometimes. We don't, be, we don't, we don't want to be seen as weird, and, uh, and we hate to stand alone. But that's exactly what, what Daniel did. So I asked my friend David, what do you think are some modern-day delicacies? What are these things that we should be saying no to? What are these things that we should avoid lest they be a defiling influence on our life? And I thought his answer was super insightful. I'm paraphrasing, but basically he said, we could assemble a massive list of the things that we think are, are drawing people away from God, but would it be helpful? Or does the believer need to come to those conclusions on their own between them and God in their, in their conscience? Because without true conviction, a list of rules to follow just leads to Pharisees whose hearts are still far from God. So rather than list out all the things that are uh, potentially defiling influence, perhaps it's better to just spur each other on to love and good works. And that way we will have the ability and the discernment to, to sort out what is good and what is bad. Philippians 4, 8, and 9 puts it this way. He says, finally, brethren, Whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things, the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. I love that it says the God of peace. I suppose he could have used any attribute of God in there, but he says the God of peace will be with you if you do these things. And then that's the same, the same book where he says, be anxious for nothing. We're commanded to be anxious for nothing. So it seems Paul is pointing out the strong correlation between the things that we spend time meditating on and the, and the level of anxiety and worry and, in our life or the lack of peace in our life. So I think we can all speak from experience that it is hard to be at peace with a guilty conscience. Amen? Could it be that our generation, our society experiences so much depression, so much anxiety and fear because we simply don't say no when we should? Or to get really heavy for a second, could it be that we're not always used by God the way that we could be because we're saying yes to too much of what the world has to offer? 
The text doesn't give us a lot of insight into how Daniel was feeling at the time, but it does appear that he was operating with boldness and confidence, and it's clear that God used him in powerful ways throughout his whole life. So I think what we're seeing here is a, an example of a man of God, or rather a, t- a teenager of God, who's operating without a guilty conscience. He's able to say no to compromise, he's able to stand, and he's experiencing that peace of God, even in the midst of these extreme circumstances. So the world would have us to change the way that we live, to compromise, to disobey God. And the way that we combat this is, as Daniel did, to simply say no. But isn't that easier said than done? Saying no is often more of a test of our character than saying yes. Or in other words, the things that we don't do often speak more about who we are than the things that we actually do. So may we be a people that, that meditate on the things that are true, noble, just, pure, lovely, virtuous, praiseworthy. And may we purpose in our hearts to say no to the things that aren't. So tactic number two, the enemy wants to change the way that we live. And the way we combat this tactic is to stand firm and say no to the pressures of the world. But more importantly, to meditate on the things that are good and pure so that we might know the difference. Okay, the third and most audacious tactic that Nebuchadnezzar tries on these guys is to to, to try to change the way that they identify themselves. And he does this by changing their actual names. We get this in verse 6 and 7. The meaning of their Jewish names were intended and, and did in that language bring glory and honor to Yahweh, the one true God. But their new names, the ones that they were given, their Babylonian names, were to bring honor and glory to the many false gods of Babylon. So check it out. Daniel means God is my judge, and it was changed to Belteshazzar, meaning Bel's prince. Hananiah means beloved by the Lord. It was changed to Shadrach, meaning illumined by the sun god. The name Mishael, meaning who is a god, was changed to Meshach, meaning who is like Venus. And the name Azariah, meaning the Lord is my help, was changed to Abednego, meaning servant of Nego. So this was just a blatant attack on their heritage and their faith. I imagine it would have been offensive and a difficult thing for those guys. It's funny how names work, too. I don't know if you've read uh, Dale Carnegie's classic, uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Anybody read that? It's a great book, especially if you're a homeschooler and you need a lot of help with that. (laughs) Just kidding. I love homeschool. But it's a great book, and in it, it tells, uh, it tells you that, well, he says, a person's name is to that person the sweetest and most important sound in any language. In other words, everybody's favorite word is their own name. And I think I found this to be true. Names are a powerful thing because they're so, so tied to our identity, and in this case, tied, tied to their faith as well. So maybe the world doesn't try to change your actual name into something that glorifies its false idols, But it certainly does try to get you to wrap up your identity in anything other than Christ. Amen? The world would like you to identify yourself by your sexuality, by your political party, by your job title, your status in society, by your wealth, by your accomplishments. Any lesser thing that would get your eyes off of Christ and onto something lesser. But our true identity, lest we forget, is as sons and daughters of Christ. Amen? We are made in his image. 1 John 3, 1 through 3 says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know him. 
Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So we could take comfort in knowing that we are God's children, that we're sons of God and, and daughters of God, and that he is our loving father who will protect and keep us. But this verse also points out that the world does not know us because it does not know him. And I don't think that's going to change this side of Jesus coming back. Do you? So this is a tension like Daniel lived in that, that we live in as exiles in Babylon and will continue to live in every day. But it's our choice, it's our decision as to what we're going to believe or rather who we're going to believe about who we are, where we come from, and where our identity is rooted so tactic number three, the enemy wants to change the way we identify ourselves. And the way that we combat this tactic is by reminding ourselves of who God is and what he's done for us and who we are in light of that. And then leaning into our identity as children of God by loving him, spending time with him, serving him, and obeying him. So these are the three tactics, none of which worked on Daniel and his friends. And that's why they're such great examples to us of how to live faithfully in a culture that has rebelled against God. Look at verse uh, 8 and 9, and we'll see how Daniel responds to all this. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of eunuchs. So it would have violated Daniel's conscience to eat the food. Commentators speculate on why it was the food in which that he took his stand. Some think that it was probably offered to false idols. Others say that um, it was against the, the Hebrew laws of the day, that the food, the delicacies were unclean. Or maybe it was a combination of both these things. But the bottom line is that it would have, it would have compromised uh, Daniel's obedience to God. And that was something he was just not willing to do. He was purposed in his heart not to defile himself. He decided in advance. His resolve was to obey the Lord. And because of that, God granted him favor with the chief of eunuchs. But this guy was, was uh, a bit scared, as we'll see. Let's finish out the rest of the story in verse 10 through 16. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear, my lord, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink, for why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would have endangered my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servant for 10 days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. So in summary, Daniel says, we're not eating or drinking that stuff. Give us vegetables and water instead. To which the chief of eunuch responds, why would I risk my neck for that? To which Daniel responds, don't panic, it's organic. Let's test it for 10 days. And then after 10 days, they're fatter in flesh and better off than all the rest. So Daniel's resolution resulted in him getting fatter. 
So make more realistic resolutions. That's the point. Just kidding. That's not the point. Okay, I have to tell you. You know what stuck out to me about this part of the scripture? And this is deeply theological. The story makes me think that it would, it would be great for VeggieTales, except for the fact that the Daniel character would be eating vegetables for 10 days straight. So for ve- VeggieTales, that would clearly be cannibalistic and therefore problematic for children's television. So I don't think we're ever going to see that one. Sorry, that's just where my mind goes. Okay, what does Daniel's example teach us about living as exiles in Babylon? Well, for one, God rewards Daniel's obedience and he's pleased with his resolve to not defile himself. We see here that God performed for him a miracle. Ten days is a really short time to see any kind of results. And not to mention a vegetable-only diet without the fats and protein would not be uh, conducive to, to being more fit and to gain weight. So clearly this is an act of God. This is a miracle that he's performed for Daniel. So when we're, when we're resolved not to defile ourselves, when we purpose in our hearts to obey the Lord, God blesses that. Jesus tells us this in Luke eleven twenty eight. 28. He says, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And then Psalms 1, 1 through 3 puts it this way. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the river of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaves also shall not wither. And whatever he does shall prosper. So I believe that God is able, he's willing, he's ready, and he's wanting to bless us for our obedience in him. For Daniel, God not only granted him favor with the chief of eunuchs and performed this nutrition miracle, God also gave him supernatural gifts to interpret visions and dreams. And, uh, and this then led to him having all kinds of authority and influence in Babylon. So we'll see this blessing in the last couple of verses. Let's get it in, in uh, 17 through 21. As for, these four yet, as for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days, when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them, and among them all, none was found like Daniel, not Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king, and in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. Thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. So God used these four guys in incredible ways. We find out in chapter 5 that Nebuchadnezzar made Daniel in charge of a lot of people. So Daniel was faithful in the small things, and God rewarded him and made him uh, responsible for so much more. And Daniel was uncompromising as a, as a young guy, and, and this led to him being pre- prepared and practiced for when things got more difficult and he was able to live faithfully towards God, even in these extreme pressures. So Jesus tells us in Luke 16, 10, He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much, and he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. So if we're faithful in the small things, God blesses that, and, and he'll make us responsible for more. And if we're uncompromising in the small things, then we'll be prepared when 
the bigger temptations and the tougher challenges arise. Many of you guys know what happens to Daniel later on and his friends in the, in the coming chapters. The, the king's food and the king's wine, those were, those were small potatoes compared to what happens next. The heat gets turned up and these guys uh, are threatened with the fiery furnace. The king builds a 90-foot statue and demands that everybody bow down. They stand, even, if it could, even though it could cost them their life. And then as an older man, there's a law passed that makes it illegal to pray. And Daniel, of course, prays anyways, even though he's threatened with the lion's den. I think he was able to do that because he'd been walking with God, strengthening his resolve since he was a kid. He was prayed up, he was practiced up, he was resolved not to defile himself. And the results, God preserved him. So they, those guys were put in that furnace, but they didn't burn up. And Daniel was put in the lion's den, but God shut the mouth of the lion. So just as he preserves them here in chapter 1, God continues to preserve the righteous, and he blesses these guys throughout their entire life. It's worth noting quickly what Daniel didn't do. You'll notice Daniel didn't plan an assassination attempt on Nebuchadnezzar. He didn't lead a revolution or a revolt or a, uh, or a escape from Babylon. He didn't do any of that stuff. Instead, Daniel chose to live peacefully, even working towards the betterment of this Gentile nation. He worked for, for decades to see Babylon flourish. And he was doing that in, in, in obedience to the advice that, that the prophet Jeremiah had given him. We see this in Jeremiah 29, 5 through 7. It says, build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters. And take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be and be carried, caused you to be carried away captive. And pray to the Lord for it. For in its peace, you will have peace. So Daniel and his friends were at peace operating inside this culture. They were able to actively work towards the betterment of Babylon without compromising their faith in God. At this point, could the band come up as we uh, will we'll start to close our service here? I believe that there's something in here for us as, as uh, living in American culture in 2020 as Christians. I believe God has us here in a similar way that God had Daniel and his friends in Babylon. And that is for his purposes, to do whatever, it is, to do whatever is on God's mind for us to do, right? Whatever his will is for our life, he has a purpose. But I wonder, maybe some of you are tired of living in that tension, because I know it could be exhausting. You wanna live a faithful life towards God, but in this culture, there's the constant temptation Sometimes there's blatant attacks, and that's a, that's a tough thing. And maybe others here, maybe you're not living in that tension. Maybe you haven't felt that tension because you have compromised. Maybe these tactics that we were talking about earlier, maybe the devil has been successful in a sense to get you to change the way that you think or the way that you live. So wherever you're at with God right now, I wanna, I wanna invite you to just Think about what Daniel did. And hopefully I pray that you're encouraged and challenged by Daniel's story as I have been. That like Daniel, we can purpose in our hearts to not defile ourselves with the things of this world. 
like Daniel, we can be rooted in our faith in God. Like Daniel, we can say no when the world tries to re-educate us, and we can say that yes to the things that are pure. Like Daniel, we can stand firm in our identity as Christ when the world tries to put a different label or rename us. And like Daniel, we can seek the peace and the betterment of the place that we live and the people in it as ambassadors for Christ. So I don't know if maybe the devil is using some of these tactics or temptations on you in your life right now, but I do know that he's working hard to weaken all of our resolve. He'd like nothing more for us to forget who who we are in Christ and to abandon our true identity as children of God. And I think that he would have you to walk into 2020, into our culture, feeling right at home here. I think that would be his goal. So I would invite you to take a stand in your heart. You don't need to wait till January 1st to make this kind of a resolution. You simply just need to be honest in front of your creator who loves you. You need to just be honest with our God who is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Our God who sent his only son to die for us and be raised from the dead to defeat death so that we can come to him. Maybe you're here this morning and and you're in a great spot. You've guarded your heart from the ways of the world. Praise God. Maybe this is just a reminder for you. But if you're here and you have compromised, if your conscience is guilty before God, I'd invite you to just, in your own heart, confess your sin to God, knowing that he will forgive you, that Jesus has died for us, and that he wants to give us that peace. We know that our God is uh, personal and he's approachable because of what he's done. We can go to him this morning and we can receive that peace from the God of peace. So in a moment, we're gonna sing a song called Give Us Clean Hands. Many of you know it. And I wanna encourage you to reflect on the words of that song and perhaps even make it your prayer for 2020. It's got simple lyrics. It says, we bow our hearts, we bend our knees. Oh spirit, come make us humble. We turn our eyes from evil things. Oh Lord, we cast down our idols. So give us clean hands, give us pure hearts. Let us not lift our souls to another. God, let us be a generation that seeks your face, O God of Jacob. Now, if at any point during this song, you'd like to pray with somebody for any reason, we'll have people at the stations over here that would love to pray with you. So you could do that anytime during the song or afterwards. Would you stand with with me as we sing this final song?